Our scripture this morning is John chapter 1, verses 6 through 15. Sorry, 13. John 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which is life to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray once again. Father, we are, we are so thankful for the growth you are bringing to this church. Father, we, we pray that we wouldn't just grow numerically. We also want to grow spiritually. Father, we long this morning to hear from you through sacred scripture. Father, I pray that you would guard my lips this morning. Help me only say what you want me to say nothing more and nothing less. Father, I pray that you would pull away the veils that blind us, keep us free from distraction this morning, and we pray that your spirit would move, manifest the presence of the risen Christ through the preaching of your word this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I grew up in an era without cell phones, so there was no caller ID. So if, if the phone rang, you had to answer it because you weren't sure who was calling. Maybe it was a really important phone call. But now everyone has cell phones and everyone has caller ID. So when, com- when someone calls, you can make a split-second decision. Should I answer this call or should I not answer this call? Now, in light of that, let me do a quick survey of the room. If your ex-boyfriend or girlfriend called you, how many of you would answer that call? Not many. If your boss called, how many would answer that call? A few more hands, okay? If a close relative called at three o'clock in the morning, how many of you would answer that call? If Justin Bieber, Kanye, or Russell Wilson called, how many of you would answer that call? Really? Really? If Russell Wilson called, and it said Russell Wilson is calling, I, I would answer that call. What if, what if the President of the United States called? <laughs> Not expecting that response. Okay, what if a really, really, really important leader called? Okay, and that was not a political statement about our president. Okay, he's important. The point is, the likelihood of you responding is directly proportional to the importance of the person who is trying to reach you. The more important the person is who's calling you, the more likely you're going to answer and say, hello, yes, what can I do for you? And that brings us to John 1, verses 6 to 13. This text reminds us that the risen Christ 
is calling to all of us this morning. And we should not ghost him. It's essential for us to respond to this particular invitation. Because your response to this call will affect how you spend all eternity. Therefore, it's really, really important to respond appropriately and quickly and soberly when this person calls you. Now, this text highlights for us three different responses to the call of the risen Christ. How did these three different groups respond to Jesus, the light of the world? Well, some witnessed I'm sorry, some proclaimed Jesus, some rejected Jesus, and some received Jesus. And I wonder which category you're in this morning. So first, some proclaimed Jesus. Well, who specifically proclaimed Jesus in this text? The answer is John the Baptist. Look with me at John 1, 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, whenever the apostle John uses the name John in the gospel of John, it's always a reference not to himself, but John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. Every time that name John is mentioned in the gospel, it's always referring to John the Baptist. Okay, so who exactly was John the Baptist? What do we know about him from other parts of the Scripture? We know that his parents were Zechariah and Elizabeth. They conceived him in old age. It was really a miracle. Um, We also know from Luke 1 that he was full of the Holy Spirit from the womb, which means he was probably a pretty easy child to raise. We also learn about John that he was very ascetic. He grew up, went to the desert, and he wore coarse clothing, and he he ate locusts dipped in wild honey. He was a very interesting fellow. But most importantly, we know that John had an incredibly powerful and profound preaching ministry. He was such a good preacher. People traveled two and three days on foot through the desert, the hot, dry, and dusty desert, just to hear him call them out for their sins. He was specially anointed by God and given the incredible privilege of preparing the way for the coming Messiah, his cousin, Jesus. So that's who proclaimed But what exactly did John proclaim about his cousin, Jesus? Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. In the first century, the word witness was a legal term. A witness was an expert who would testify in a court of law, and their obligation was to speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. This was not a religious word, this word for witness. In fact, we get the word martyr from this word witness. So witnesses were required to speak the truth. John specifically proclaimed the truth or witnessed to the coming of the Messiah. He specifically said that the Messiah, Jesus, is the light of the world who dispels all the darkness. Later on in John 1, he proclaims in a loud voice, 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The message he proclaimed was an incredibly powerful message. Charles Spurgeon was a great preacher in the 19th century. Many call him the prince of preachers. One day he walked into a, a new facility. He was going to preach there that night, and he thought it was empty. So he, to, a, to test the acoustics in that facility, he said in a loud voice, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Unbeknownst to him, there was a, a custodian way up in the balcony cleaning the pews. The custodian heard those simple words, and on the spot, he was converted. John's message was incredibly powerful. But John was not the light, the text says. John came to bear witness about the light. It was not about John. Eventually, some of John's disciples came to him and said, John, aren't you concerned? All your disciples are going to hear Jesus preach. In other words, they're saying, John, Jesus is more popular than you. And what does John say? He said, speaking of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. One scholar says this, the moon is a massive chunk of lifeless rock. It has not spark of fire, not a glimmer of light of its own. The work of the moon is to be a giant reflector in the sky to pick up the light of the sun and relay the light back to the earth. The moon is not the light. It is poised in space to bear witness to the light. Out there beyond the darkness of the world and the night is the sun. The sun is a vast orb of burning gas, a kind of nuclear furnace blazing away, pouring out a continual stream of light. The moon's function is only temporary, for the day is coming. The sun sheds its light directly on the earth, dispelling its darkness in a way the moon could not do. Such was the ministry of John the Baptist. He was not the light but was sent to bear witness of the light. The next time you see the moon, remember that you, like the moon, are designed to bear witness about the light. Our privilege, like John the Baptist's privilege, is to be a witness for Jesus, to speak the whole truth and nothing but the truth to a lost and dying world about Jesus. And yes, John had a unique a position in salvation history, but all of us as Christians have the distinct privilege of telling people about the light of the world. How do we know? Acts 1.8. Luke says this, speaking to the disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, my martyrs, in Jerusalem, and all of Judea and Samaria, and at the end of the earth. Now we know that Luke is talking, uh, describing here more than just the disciples because he says, I'll be with you as you take the gospel to the end of the earth. Not the apostles, that's the church he's referring to. All of us as Christians have the privilege of bearing witness to the light of Christ. What must we say about Jesus? 
Well, let me give you a simple outline. God, man, Christ, response. That's it. God. God is righteous and holy and just. And human beings are not. Human beings are sinners who deserve God's righteous judgment. God and man. But there's good news. Christ, Jesus Christ, came to earth as a perfect man, fully God, fully man, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave victoriously, will come someday to judge the world. God, man, Christ, response. All of us must respond to Christ through faith and repentance. That's the message. God, man, Christ, response. But Dave, I'm no expert. I don't know all that much. Tell folks what you know. If all you know is Jesus Christ has changed my life, tell them that. Dave, I'm terrified. What do my friends think of me? Be a gospel-centered evangelist. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself, even if your friends think you're a lunatic, an idiot, a religious nut job, it's okay. Because the gospel says that as a Christian, you are loved and accepted and adopted by God. So if your friends reject you, so be it. Dave, I'm apathetic. Repent and pray. Dave, this is easy for you. You're a pastor. No. <laughs> it's awkward for me. It's awkward for all of us. Witnessing is always awkward, so just push on through it and witness. Is that encouraging or what? It's always awkward. Push through it. Dave, I don't know any non-Christians. Pray for one person to invest in. Just one. If every person here prayed for one person, invested in one person, the church would double overnight. Dave, I'm just an ordinary person. The church of Jesus Christ has always grown through very ordinary people doing very ordinary things, evangelizing very ordinary people. I mentioned earlier this morning, I just read a fantastic book um, about the Methodists of the 19th century. Uh, and the, and the, the Methodists were incredibly ordinary people. Uneducated, simple people, homemakers, electricians, plumbers, bricklayers, glaziers. They were normal people. But God used them in the 19th century to do incredible things. In a 25-year period, from 1880 to 1905, American Methodists planted on average 700 churches a year. 18,000 churches planted in 25 years. Why? Because they had rock star pastors? No. They had very ordinary, untrained pastors. Pastoring very ordinary people, just like you and me. But they were faithful to pray and open their mouths and talk about Jesus. And God used them mightily to turn America upside down, which is why the 19th century is called in American church history the Methodist century. But not everyone responds well to the proclamation of Jesus, which brings us to the next group. So first, some proclaimed Jesus. Next, some rejected Jesus, the second group. 
Look at John 1, 9 to 10. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Verse 10 is astonishing in light of the earlier part of chapter 1. Verse 10 is saying the world did not recognize Jesus. Well, who was Jesus? According to 1, verses 1 to 5, he was the word. He was the one who spoke the universe into existence out of nothing by the power of his word. He created the eyeball, brain, nose, hand, and heart. He invented astronomy, chemistry, physics, biology, mathematics, and medicine. He knows every law known to science and every law not known to science, not because he studied them, but because he invented them. He is immensely powerful and wise and creative and holy and righteous, yet the world did not recognize him. How incredibly absurd and ironic. The very one who was responsible for the world's existence was not recognized by his own creation. But it gets even worse. His own people rejected him. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, these verses raise an important question. Why does the world reject the light of Christ? People reject Christ because they are spiritually blind. 1 Corinthians 2.14 makes this very clear. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. How about 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 4? And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Before conversion, you and I were all spiritually blind. Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a famous pastor in Philadelphia in the 20th century. When World War II was just beginning, he was in Ireland preaching at a church. At that particular point in history, many of the people in Ireland would block out the light several hours a day uh, in preparation for the air raids, that the, the planes couldn't see what was happening down below. It just so happened that when Dr. Barnhouse was preaching, they turned the lights out because that was the time of the day when the lights were supposed to be out. And he kept preaching. Everyone thought it was normal for him to be preaching in the darkness. The lights were supposed to be out. Everyone knew they were supposed to be out. But someone accidentally went to the back of the room and flipped all the lights on, which caused quite a commotion in the room. Everybody was wondering, like, like who did that? What's going on? And there was a man sitting next to Dr. Barnhouse's wife, and he said with a loud whisper, what's going on? Why is everyone so agitated? What's going on? Why, why is everyone so worked up? See, the problem was he was blind 
He didn't know that the lights had been turned on accidentally. He just heard the commotion in the room. He was blind to what was actually happening all around him. And before conversion, all of us are blind to the glory of God in the face of Christ. I remember many, many years ago hearing the story of Dick Lucas. Dick Lucas was the pastor of a church called St. Helen's Bishop Gate in London, a big, thriving evangelical Anglican church. And in an evening service, he preached his heart out. He got up for 30 minutes and extolled the glories of justification by faith alone and argued for 30 minutes, there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. There is nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. When we're justified, we are declared righteous through faith alone plus nothing. And he went on and on and on proclaiming grace and proclaiming that salvation is through faith alone. And afterwards, a visitor came up to him and shook his hand and said, Dr. Lucas, thank you so much for that sermon. I am so thankful that God helps those who help themselves. Dr. Lucas thought, did you hear anything that I just said? Anything? And of course, he heard it with his ears, but he was spiritually blind. And everyone who's not a Christian is spiritually blind. Yes, they can understand intellectually and comprehend the main points of Christianity, but their hearts are not going to be moved or affected or eternally transformed until God turns the lights on. People reject Jesus because they're blind. And the Bible makes that very abundantly clear. Which means, by the way, that prayer is critical. Critical for evangelism and critical for parenting. I pray nearly every night, Lord, would you please regenerate the hearts of my boys? Because there is nothing I can do, nothing to regenerate their hearts. Only God the Spirit can do that. Yes, God uses means. We should discipline our kids and love them and tell them about Jesus. But when all is said and done, you and I are powerless to change the hearts of our kids. Utterly powerless. So prayer is crucial. People reject Jesus because they are blind. They also reject Jesus because they love their sin. John 3, 19, a little bit later in John, John writes, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Before conversion, you and I loved sin. People also reject Jesus because his cross criticizes us. The cross reminds all of us that our sins were so bad, the Son of God had to be murdered in our place for us to be forgiven. Which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the cross of Christ is folly to the world. It's folly. The light of Christ is rejected by many. John the Baptist was rejected. Eventually, he was beheaded. 
Jesus Christ was rejected. Eventually, he was crucified. And you and I should not expect any better treatment from the world. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus was the most winsome, kind, gracious, patient person to ever live, wasn't he? Yet he was vilified, slandered, hated, and murdered. You and I can be the most winsome people we're aware of but the world's still gonna hate us. Should we be winsome? Yes, we should be winsome. (laughs) We should be gentle and kind and gracious. But even if you are those things, the world's still gonna reject you if you follow Jesus. If you think I'm wrong, let me challenge you to go onto the campus of WSU or University of Washington and say in a classroom, there are only two genders Male and female, and they correspond with your plumbing. And see how that goes. Or simply say, Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Every other way leads to death and destruction. See how that goes. Now, in one sense, it's very encouraging to know that the world hated John the Baptist and Jesus, and they're going to hate us. We shouldn't be surprised. And for years and years and years, this country has been a paragon of virtue and freedom, but things are changing rapidly, aren't they? And persecution is coming. But you and I have nothing to fear. We must not fear rejection or persecution. Why? Because Jesus says in Matthew 5:11, "Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice," and the Greek here says, "and be exceedingly glad." Rejoice and be glad when people persecute you. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Life is incredibly short. Persecution is a reality for Christians all over the globe right now. And when persecution comes, when rejection comes, we can rejoice and be glad because our reward is exceedingly great in heaven. And if that's true, why are we afraid to tell people about Jesus? Though most reject Jesus, some will receive him. Which brings us to the last group of people. So some proclaim Jesus, some reject Jesus, and some receive Jesus. There is good news in this passage. Well, what is the benefit of receiving Jesus? And the answer is adoption. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. When you become a Christian, 
Something astonishing happens. The maker of all things, God the Father, adopts you into his family because his own son died on the cross for your sins. Jesus Christ becomes your brother. God becomes your father, which means that someday you will inherit all things as a child of God. Adoption is the apex of all the privileges of being a Christian. I love the doctrine of justification. I love the fact that when I put my faith and trust in Jesus, he declares me righteous, forgives all my sins. But justification is strictly legal. Jesus Christ can declare me righteous, and the Father may not adopt me. He does. Redemption is wonderful. I love the fact that when I'm forgiven, I am redeemed. I am freed from the power of sin, the power of the devil, and I'm freed from the fear of death. That's wonderful. But I can be freed and not be a child of God. Reconciliation is amazing. When I become a Christian, I am reconciled to God. I'm no longer an object of wrath. But I can be reconciled to someone and not treated as a son. When God saves us, he justifies us, he redeems us, he reconciles us, and best of all, he makes us his own children. Which means that you're a joint heir with Christ. And not just children but beloved children. When we're adopted by God, we become objects of God's affection. Parents, think about how much you love your children. Remember when they took their first steps, how proud you were of them for walking the first time? Then they were potty trained, no more diapers. Remember when they ate solid food the first time, how proud you were of that fact? Then they grow up a little bit more, and remember the first time that they scored a touchdown or hit a home run or made the jazz band or won their first tennis tournament or had their first guitar solo and jazz band? Remember how proud you were of them, how much you wanted to shower them with affection? Remember when they finally graduated from high school, finally left the house, got their first job, got their first advanced degree. Remember how much you were proud of them and how much you loved them? And you and I are very imperfect parents. God the Father loves us even more than the most perfect parent loves their child. He rejoices over us. He's proud of us. He has affection for us. He loves us as a perfect father loves his child. Here's the good news. If you're God's child, God the Father promises to care for you. If you're God's child, God the Father promises to lovingly discipline you, and that's good. If you're a child of God, 
You are a co-heir with Jesus. If you're a child of God, you will always have access to your heavenly Father through prayer. But most importantly, if you're a child of God, you are loved by the maker of all things. What's the benefit of receiving Jesus? Adoption. The greatest benefit of the Christian life. Well, what is the means of receiving Jesus? Faith. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How do we receive Jesus? John tells us this by believing in his name. And his name is shorthand for his character. His name is shorthand for all the things the Bible says about Jesus. And this is not just believing facts about Jesus. It's a personal trust in Jesus, a desire to follow Jesus. But the point here is simply this. We become children of God not through effort but through faith, by believing and receiving him through faith. And when we do that, we get the incredible status of being children of God. People work their whole lives to receive status and privilege. People work their whole lives to be CEOs, CFOs, COOs, surgeons, chief residents, vice president of sales, president of sales. I had a friend in college, his name was Jared. And Jared was a really good athlete in high school, and he was very smart. But he would never go out and play basketball with us, and I, I often wondered why. He, he, I remember several times knocking on his door, hey Jared, let's go out and play basketball. Let's go out and hang out tonight. Let's go out and hang out with our friends this weekend. And he would always say, Dave, thanks so much, but no thanks, I gotta study. Friday evenings. Saturday evenings, I remember on a Saturday night, I, I poked my head in his door, Jared, we're going out to party, come with us. His biology textbook right there. Sorry, Dave, I gotta study, can't do it. Jared was willing to work really, really hard, why? He wanted to get into med school. I saw him a few years, a few years ago, uh, and he did it. He's now a cardiologist here in Spokane. He worked really, really hard to achieve the status of a cardiologist. But here's the good news. There is nothing you can do to earn the greatest status in the world, a child of God. You can't earn it. It is received simply through faith. The moment you believe the gospel, God declares you righteous, and then God the Father makes you his child. And that all happens not through hard work, not through effort, but through faith. That's it. That's the scandal of Christianity. We simply believe and we become adopted sons and daughters of God. But what is the benefit of receiving Jesus? Adoption. What is the means of receiving Jesus? Faith. Well, who can receive Jesus? Who can receive Jesus? Only those who are born again. Look at verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Now we're going to explore this theme in much more detail in John chapter 3, this whole theme of the new birth or regeneration. But John's making it very, very clear. Here's what happens. God, motivated by sheer grace and mercy, rips out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. He performs a miracle. We were spiritually dead, and God made us alive spiritually. He regenerated our hearts, caused us to be born again, and when that happened, he also gave us the gift of faith and repentance and effectually called us by his Holy Spirit that we believed, we were justified, we were adopted, and he will glorify us someday. John's making the point that we can only believe when we are born from above. When God performs a miracle, the miracle of regeneration. And if this is true, we are not Christians because of our families. We are not Christians because of our education. We are not Christians because of our wisdom. We are not Christians because we are really spiritually sensitive people. We are Christians for one reason and one reason alone. God, motivated by grace and mercy, regenerated our hearts and gave us the ability to repent and believe, which destroys all boasting and kills self-righteousness. Everyone, and I mean everyone, must respond to Jesus. Neutrality is not an option. We must respond to Jesus by making a decision to repent of our sins and follow him. And if we've made that decision, it's because and only because God has regenerated our hearts and that's the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. You must decide to follow Jesus. Everyone here, kids, you must decide at some point to follow Jesus. You can only do that when the Holy Spirit regenerates your hearts. God is sovereign, yet we're responsible to trust him and to follow him. And when we do, he receives all the glory and the honor and praise. So when Jesus calls how will you respond? Some proclaimed him. Some rejected him. Some received him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have seen fit to regenerate so many hearts in this room. Father, we thank you for the incredible privilege of being identified as children of God. And Father, we thank you that there's nothing, 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 nothing we can do to earn that incredible status. Lord, help us to be thankful 
and joyful today. And Lord, help us this week, motivated by grace and empowered by your Holy Spirit, to witness to the incredible life-saving power of Jesus. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.